In the 16th century, strangers was the name used in England for people not born in the territories controlled by the Tudor monarchy. So when we think about Henry VIII's soldiers and navy, the very spearhead of Henry's continental ambition, as well as the defenders of his realm, we might not expect to find strangers among them. But there were. If you're familiar with the podcast, you'll know that we recently did a three-part special on the sinking and raising of Henry's warship, the Mary Rose. Do go back and listen if you haven't already. And it's this very ship that gave birth to the work of today's guests. The Mary Rose sank on the 19th of July, 1545, while doing battle with the French in the Solent off the south coast of England. As she went down, she took nearly all of the 500 men on board, with every one of their belongings, personal and professional. By drawing on the archaeological remains from the Mary Rose and combining them with the artefacts that were salvaged, as well as historical documents, Samantha Nelson and Professor Catherine Fletcher are here to share some riveting insights into the diversity of the people who served in Henry VIII's military forces. Samantha Nelson is currently a doctoral student at Manchester Metropolitan University, examining how women from all social levels, from royal to common-born, employed gendered strategies to engage in warfare in some form, including as military organisers, intelligencers, camp followers, auxiliaries or defenders. Catherine Fletcher is Professor of History at Manchester Metropolitan. She has written and co-authored five books, including The Beauty and the Terror, An Alternative History of the Italian Renaissance, and Our Man in Rome, Henry VIII and His Italian Ambassador, both published by Random House. Professor Fletcher has also appeared on Not Just the Tudors before, discussing her work on the Black Prince of Florence. I'm delighted to welcome her back. Welcome to you both. Thank you, Catherine, Professor Fletcher, for coming back to Not Just the Tudors. And Samantha, thank you for joining us for the first time. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. No, it's lovely to be back. So I thought we'd start by thinking about what we know so far, because in recent years, there's been attention both in academia and in the media on the background of some of the men aboard the Mary Rose. In fact, there was an exhibition at Mary Rose Museum about that. What did this archaeological evidence establish? So the archaeological evidence, the 2019 study, established it was a number of what contemporaries would have deemed strangers, so citizens born in territories not under the control of the English monarch. So the study found that one male was of Spanish descent, one was of Italian descent, one was potentially from North Africa, and the fourth was of North African heritage, but he grew up in the west of Britain. Now, a 2009 archaeological study conducted on similar skeletons concluded that these men were likely to have been from Spain or regions more southerly to Britain. But this study really just honed in on that research and provided more definitive conclusions. In terms of the gentlemen with North African heritage who grew up in the west of Britain, they also did DNA analysis to put those two, the isotope analysis and the DNA together. And your work combines this archaeological evidence with, of the skeletons with artefacts and historical documents and I wonder, Catherine, what inspired this interdisciplinary approach? What were you hoping to discover? Well, I mean, the background to this whole story is great because actually it began when Samantha came to me as an academic at Swansea University looking for a project for her undergraduate dissertation. 
and having read Black Tudors, I think, by Miranda Kaufman. And as it happened, I had been working with people who were involved in the research on Mary Rose. And I said, well, why do we think about whether we could put this archaeology into a little bit more historical context? Because there is a bigger picture out there of foreigners being involved in the service of the English crown, which I knew about from my previous work on Italian diplomats in the service of Henry VIII. So I thought perhaps there is more that we can do bringing together some of the texts with these particular findings from the quite detailed isotope research and just see what it might tell us about the bigger picture of English society beyond just who was on the Mary Rose at that very particular point. That's fascinating. I'm going to press you a little further, Catherine, on the kind of political context of the 1540s, if we're going to understand the role of strangers in the defence and maintenance of the English realm, then it might be helpful briefly to outline that political context and why Henry needed men at this time. Yes. So Henry had by this time broken with the Church of Rome. And for those first not a few years after that, 1533, 1534, going through to the 1540s, there was some sense of England alone potentially facing a threat of invasion. Lots of people tried to line up the Catholic powers to kick the heretic off the throne, potentially, which Susan Brigden has written about in a piece on the potential crusade against England. And of course, that did not come to be. And by the time we get to the early 1540s, Henry is actually looking at the prospect of conflict between France and Spain, and is rather being courted by both the French and the Spanish as a potential ally. So initially, he allies with Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, in 1543, and from there goes on to launch a big campaign against France the following year. So that's the background. It's going back to that traditional rivalry of England versus France, which, of course, we've already seen also earlier in the reign in 1512 to 1522. And we should say, of course, that England didn't have a standing army. So what were the traditional methods by which... Henry was raising men for military service. And is there a reason why these methods are now not effective or are not effective in the 1540s, which means that Henry is seeking foreigners? Or do we know, do we have evidence that he's been relying on strangers, soldiers and mariners before? So Henry had a quasi-feudal method of recruitment. So in one aspect, letters were sent to noblemen who would raise retinues from amongst their tenantry, their household, kinsmen. And then on the other hand, soldiers would be raised through commissions of array. So these were letters that were sent to counties or communities. And then these communities were expected to raise a specified number of men and they were to provide specified weaponry as such. So this method, it worked. However, Henry wanted to keep up with Francois of France and Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor and King of Spain. So they frequently used mercenaries in their armies. And Henry also supplemented his domestic troops with foreign mercenaries. Now, the 1540s campaign wasn't the first time that Henry had hired mercenaries. So in his previous French campaigns, we see the hiring foreign mercenaries, and these are evidence all throughout the state papers. And especially for his Boulogne campaign in 1544, there was a significant number of troops in the garrison. So we actually have one account from Ellis Griffith, who was a Welsh chronicler and soldier at Calais, and he described how there was many depraved British soldiers from all nations under the sun, as he put it. So we've got Welsh, English, Scottish, 
even German and Spanish. So, I mean, that gives a bit of context about soldier serving. There were also sailors and foreign sailors and mariners, but we could leave that for another question. That's an entirely different ballpark. Well, let's look at that then. So other than the skeletal remains, what evidence is there that this diversity we see in the soldiers is also evident amongst mariners and particularly, I suppose, those who we know would have been on the Mary Rose? So there were a number of mariners serving in previous wars who were foreign born. So we've got the 1512-14 campaign. Henry hired a number of ships from Antwerp and Spain to transport troops from England to Calais. But more specifically, he hired five Spanish ships of war to fight in the campaign in naval warfare. And these contained mixed crews of English and Spanish sailors and soldiers. Some of these had Spanish captains and some of them were manned by English courtiers. So this is similar to the situation of the Mary Rose. Also on board, there are a number of artefacts potentially linking to the foreign heritage of the sailors. So we've got a carry shell from the east coast of Africa and the Indian Ocean. Now that could be evidence of trade, but on the other hand, it could be a personal artefact of one of the sailors. If we back that up with reports from the state papers of foreign sailors serving on English warships and also contemporary reports from the time. So we have the Imperial Ambassador, Francois van der Delft, ambassador to Charles V, writing how a Fleming survived the sinking of the Mary Rose and also a report from apparently Sir George Carew that his ship had sunk due to the pressures and the sort of knaves who he could not rule. So when we put all of this together, we've got written reports about potentially foreign sailors. We've got state papers describing the hiring of foreign sailors and then we've got artefacts on board. And when we've put those together, it creates a credible picture of foreign sailors as well as foreign soldiers on board the Mary Rose. I love that because it just completely blasts through our assumptions about Englishness in every aspect of foreign relations during this period of time. So, you know, he's going to fight against France. Well, let's get some Spanish ships to help do that then, you know, or let's have some Flemish men on board, etc. I think we have this idea that when Henry breaks with Rome, he's breaking with the whole of Europe. And it doesn't work like that at all. There's still these really important trade relations. There's a big English community down in Seville in southern Spain. If you think of, you know, the Tudor Pomander, that classic object, it's got an orange, it's got clothes stuck in it. I mean, none of that stuff is local to England. It's all being imported. We've got these huge lists of Spanish ships going in and out of Bristol to places like Bilbao. You know, that trade doesn't stop just because there's been a political falling out. And I think that's a really, really important aspect of English life and English society that is quite easy to forget when we just get the popular image of Henry standing alone. Yes, and I think so much of that actually is a 19th century and early 20th century construct. Your research sheds fascinating light on how these men from different countries came to be on the Mary Rose. Can you tell me about the use of impressment and paid mercenaries in Henry's reign and where they came from. Well, they come from all over. But I think one of the things that's happening precisely in the 1540s is that the wars in Southern Europe, the Italian wars, the Venetian Ottoman War, have calmed down somewhat after the late 1530s. And so you have essentially mercenary units who are unemployed. And you have captains from Spain and from Italy thinking, well, where is the next war where we can go and hire ourselves out? And one option is 
going to be Henry's wars. So obviously there's this period when people are thinking perhaps there's going to be a conflict. And Henry in the 40s, of course, not only got a conflict with France, he's also got conflict brewing on the borders with Scotland. And we find that there are all these soldiers, for example, up in Newcastle. We have, I think it's Spanish soldiers. We've got these ships coming in. We've got Spanish and Italian captains going to the English diplomats in the Low Countries and saying, would you like to purchase our services? And one of the issues, obviously, Henry can raise people domestically, but the numbers to fight on two fronts, the numbers that you need are really substantial. France is a much bigger country in terms of population. The local resources the French can, can draw on are much bigger. So to have a realistic prospect of fighting both France and Scotland simultaneously, mercenaries are the obvious choice, I think. So, Samantha, do you think that Henry's scouting for soldiers and mariners on the continent, and is this allowed? Or is it just, as Catherine said, that they're sort of people out of work looking for employment and he seems like a likely employer? I think a Henry definitely was scouted in on the continent. So from 1545, this political situation changed. So Charles V had signed a treaty with France, kind of behind Henry's back. And by doing so, he recalled all mercenaries that he had previously loaned to Henry during their alliance. So at this point, Henry was panicking a little bit and he was making a lot of overtures into the continent, particularly around the German states, the low countries and Italy, as Catherine's alluded to. A lot of the times he used unofficial networks. So we have Stephen Vaughan, who was one of his agents in the low countries, who were making these overtures to German princes. An interesting case as well. So in 1545, the courtiers of Philip Hobby was allocated a thousand marks to actually impress Spanish men who had been stranded in the port of Falmouth. And there is also other instances. So, for example, two gentlemen from the Low Countries, Jacob Jacobs and Henry Jans, who had complained that Henry had impressed them into service against their wishes. So we see these contacts being made on the continent, but then he's also capitalising on these ships who are being stranded along the English coast, impressing them into service. So it's quite remarkable, really. And I think we probably ought to gloss that word impress because, of course, it has another meaning as well. So what is it to be impressed into service? It's basically being press-ganged, which is probably the more familiar term. So it's a bunch of English soldiers turning up and saying, right, we now require you guys to work for us. And there can be a level of violence involved, but it can simply be a matter of if you're stranded in Falmouth, your ship has run out of supplies, you need to get food from somewhere, and this is your sole option, then that is sufficient to convince you that you might as well side on and therefore get your supplies back. So it's a mixed experience that obviously what we don't have is the voice of the record of what any of these Spanish mariners thought for themselves, which is almost one of the challenges of doing this type of research is trying to think about it from the ordinary soldier's experience, the ordinary mariner's experience. So we can only speculate exactly what they made of being impressed, but there are a number of possible responses. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is After Dark. Myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. Hello, I'm James Rogers, and over on the History Hit Warfare podcast, I bring you cutting-edge military histories from around the world. Why was Sitting Bull such a remarkable leader? What was Napoleon's greatest ever battle? How did the Cuban Missile Crisis almost turn the Cold War hot? And who dropped the world's largest nuclear bomb on the Arctic? Through interviews with world-leading historians, policy experts, and the veterans who served, we find the answers to these questions and so much more. So come and join us on the History Hit Warfare podcast, where we're on the front lines of military history. Can we talk a little bit about migration as a possible explanation for strangers? Because listeners might have a sense that by the 1560s, say, you've got wars of religion happening on the continent, which was a key cause of migration to England by Protestants, say, from the Low Countries. But could you tell us about the significant movement to England in Henry's reign and how this might explain the presence of some of these people on the Merry Rose? As you mentioned, a lot of the work that I read focuses on the mid-16th century onwards and the religious motivated movement of people. I think recent work by people like Miranda Kaufman and Onyaka Nubia have really made great efforts towards showing that there was a significant movement of people from the early 16th century. So, for example, the stranger population of London increased from three to 6,000 individuals from the beginning of the 16th century to the mid-16th century. And in particular wards, we've got like Smithfield, Aldgate, Billingsgate. And there's also a fantastic resource to the England's Immigrants Database. And it shows that in the early 16th century, there was hundreds of individuals coming over from different countries across Europe. And these brought with them trades and skills. But more than this, I think during the early 16th century, there was a bit of a commercial boom that had led on from the later 15th century, sorry. And with this was a greater movement of people. And they seemed to settle in commercial centres like London, Bristol, but also in coastal centres like Devon, Cornwall. And these included people from the Low Countries, Northern Europe, but also potentially African communities living in Iberia. So we know that in Spain, Portugal, Italy, there were these 
big black communities, some of them slaves, but also some of them freemen and manumitted slaves. So potentially these could have worked through these commercial trading routes, come to these commercial and coastal centres in England. So in the early 16th century, I think it would be unfair to say that Tudor England wasn't diverse, perhaps not as much as the late 16th century, but there was certainly a diverse community. And just pulling back to the work that Miranda Kaufman and Nyaka Nubia have already conducted, there were strangers in the Tudor court. So we've got Catalina, the Moorish servant of Catherine of Aragon, and then we've got John Blank, the trumpeter. So we see they're not just in the communities, they're really penetrating the Tudor court also. Yes, very much. And we don't know, of course, where those people would come from, but we sense that they had gone with Catherine of Aragon when she went to England. And I suppose that's an interesting question when it comes to thinking about people of potentially African heritage. We don't know their first point of origin in terms of arriving on the Mary Rose, but we do have this skeletal evidence that there are men of this potential African heritage there. So how would we explain how they came to be on board? Are we thinking that they were impressed, that they were mercenaries, that they were from a family who had perhaps migrated to England and then been called up. Any ideas? Well, there's a couple of possibilities. There's a really interesting study of the Spanish army in Italy, in the Italian wars of the earlier 16th century. And you find quite a lot of hostile accounts of the Spanish army saying this army is not properly Christian and it has lots of Jews and Muslims in it. Now, some of this is a hostile stereotype, the black legend of Spain, Spain as not thoroughly Christian. So you have to take it with a pinch of salt. But given that there was a very large Muslim population in southern Spain and a large exchange of people between southern Spain and North Africa up until the point of the Reconquista in 1492, when Al-Andalus fell to the Catholic monarchs of Spain, it's very, very plausible that people of North African descent ended up either voluntarily or were joining the Spanish army or were impressed having been taken as prisoners of war during some of those earlier conflicts by the Spanish army and then eventually find their way on Spanish ships, having taken that up either as part of the merchant navy, as professional soldiers, sometimes as captives. You know, there are lots and lots of different routes by which people can make their way out of that Mediterranean context of war into the English Channel in the end. Plus, there are then other routes. I mean, obviously, we disappeared to the Holy Roman Empire, in which Charles V becomes ruler of both Spain and the Low Countries. And what we also see is a lot of migration between the two. So there are routes for people to be coming through the Low Countries, through trade that way. And we know that there were also imports of military technology and military personnel by Henry. Now, this possibly less of an obvious route for North African migrants, but it's a very plausible route for people coming from the Low Countries and from Italy. So, for example, some of Henry's gun founders in London were originally from a Flemish background, were originally from an Italian background. So we also see specific people really being headhunted for their technical expertise as that relates to certain trade. So can we talk, therefore, about skill sets? Because I love the display of artefacts at the Mary Rose Museum from the ship's barber surgeon. So you've got surgical razors, you've got his folding knives, you've got the handle of an amputation saw, a dish for bleeding his patients, and a syringe for mercury, and all sorts of other things, wooden containers for medicine. Now, he's not a fighting man. So how does this add to our understanding of strangers in Henry's service? I think that it's 
remarkable the barber surgeon his artifacts suggest that he was of foreign descent so we don't have any skeletal remains for the barber surgeon to produce more like conclusive results but as you mentioned some of his tools well a lot of his tools actually are typical of those produced in Germany or the low countries in a period so we've got wooden canisters medicament jars but then also his personal effects we've got a number of pewter plates the hilt of a German sword which they were being produced in England at the time they mirror what was being made in Germany this barber surgeon contrary to what we may think of barber surgeons being unskilled they had to register with the guild they were well-respected men they would have done a number of important roles on the ship attending to injuries especially during active warfare he would have been busy and in demand so this gentleman played an important role he's likely to be a headhunted for his skills and then we look at the Spanish carpenter so the gentleman I discussed at the beginning of Spanish descent the artifacts that were found alongside him also suggest that he was born in Spain so we've got a number of skilled tradesmen on board who would have occupied very high position on the ship that weren't born in England. And with that, we can back up the archaeological evidence with the artefacts from the Mary Rose in some cases. And that creates like a fantastic picture. That is absolutely wonderful. An excellent example of triangulating in history. So we've talked about skills and we've talked about the kind of sheer force of numbers. Are there other advantages to Henry for having strangers in his militia? There are probably some issues around professional expertise, particularly with the use of gunpowder weapons. So firearms have become decisive on the battlefield in the Italian wars in the early 16th century, and they're particularly used by Spanish militias. Now, by the time you get to the 1540s, these skills have expanded somewhat, but the particular pike and shot technique that you use requires quite a cohesive unit who drill together, who train together. It is not necessarily the sort of thing that you can throw together on the back of a muster without putting your troops through quite a bit of training to be able to pull off the more complex battlefield manoeuvres. So particularly insofar as handgun shooting, looking after gunpowder, being really familiar with gunpowder weapons, we may well be looking at some import of expertise on that front. One of the fascinating objects that's found on the Mary Rose is a handgun that is labelled Gardone, and that's Gardone Valtrampia, just to the north of Brescia in northern Italy, a major centre then for arms manufacturing, still home to the Beretta factory, which has been going for almost 500 years. So real continuity of heritage there. So we know they're importing Italian weapons, Quite possibly, they're also encouraging the migration of some people with that particular military expertise in that style of fighting. And just to add on from where Catherine left off, it would be unfair to say that Henry wasn't importing weapons in his time and that the English army was completely unproficient in the use of gunpowder weaponry. He was keen to implement it. And we see particularly in his garrisons in Calais and Berwick, we see inventories of handguns, ordnance. However, it has been noted by a number of contemporary sources that the English weren't as proficient in the use of gunpowder weaponry as their continental counterparts. So in the musters, we've got overwhelming number of bills and longbows being used, which were traditional English instruments of war. In 1544, a thousand Italian arquebusiers were hired and they were specifically described as expert men of war. And in the same year, Stephen Vaughan suggested to Henry to hire skilled foreign mercenaries 
mercenaries who were proficient in gunpowder weaponry because, I quote, that the English lacked the skill. And even as late as 1557, during the reign of Mary I, Henry's daughter, the Venetian ambassador said that the English were not proficient in gunpowder weaponry. They still tended to fall back on the longbows. So there is the integrated use in the English army. They were definitely there, but the continental counterparts were using them more. They were more proficient and they were used to battlefield tactics where these could be easily implemented. So we're building up a picture of Spanish medical supplies, Italian weapons, Flemish sailors, German soldiers outsourcing the training to get on top of this brand new technology when it comes to warfare. We often hear about the success that Henry has in creating and improving the English Navy. Should strangers be part of this success story? Well, I think so. Yes, absolutely. One of the ways that historians today are starting to think about how states generally operate in relation to war is to think much more about contracting, military contracting and outsourcing than the old picture of these being primarily national states with national armies, with national navies. I mean, absolutely for sure, Henry VIII is trying to improve the English navy. He's tried to improve his domestic troops. But if we only look at that and don't think about the many processes of outsourcing what people have called the contract estate, then I think we miss a big chunk of the picture. Um, you know, we tend to think of mercenaries and mercenary companies as something that exists in modern war that kind of outsourcing to the Blackwaters and so on of this world and the Wagner Company at the moment. But, you know, this was very much something that was happening in the early modern period. And there's actually a surprising number of commonalities between what was going on then and the world we see now in terms of the use of private military resourcing. I would also agree with your statement, Susanna. I mean, growing up in school and I heard about the Mary Rose and Henry's Wars, I typically always thought of it as a very English experience. So doing this research really made me question what I knew about early modern wars and how England or the British Isles wasn't insular. It was connected to different parts of Europe and beyond. And I mean, when we've got the archaeological evidence and we've got various textual records from narrative accounts, state papers, financial records, I mean, it's pretty undeniable that these strangers or foreign-born men did contribute to many different aspects of English warfare and naval warfare too. Yes, the channel was not an obstacle, it was a bridge. On the other side of the story, though, we know about the Mary Rose because she sank. And we know that despite all Henry's bombast, his achievements in France, even the Siege of Boulogne, is not a a huge success, is somewhat mired, let's put it like that. Should we believe that the transnational quality of Henry's forces could have been a contributing factor? Could diversity cause problems of communication, say, or differences of belief? Or can we see that there was a negative side as well as this sort of overwhelmingly positive side? Well, coming back to that story of George Carew and this question of, you know, whether the English officers on the Mary Rose could make themselves understood, could convince the crew what they were saying. One of the arguments that's been made about that was that there was actually a problem of communication there and that it was a problem for saving the ship, writing the ship, that the crew couldn't understand what they were being asked to do. Now, given everything we've found about the sheer number of ships 
which had diverse crews, which must have had multilingual crews where we have English captains working with mixed Spanish and English crews. I think if there was a miscommunication on the day, then it's probably a failure of interpretation. It's a, you know, losing the person whose job it was to do the interpreting because we know those people existed rather than it being a generalised problem in the system of having diversity, because we know they made that work a lot of the time. But it is true that if not everybody is speaking the same language, you have to make that bit more effort to make things work. And I think we can recognise that while saying at the same time that migrants and the expertise that they brought to Tudor warfare was a very positive thing overall for the quality of the armed forces that Henry was able to deploy. And just adding on from that, I mean, the artefacts that were salvaged from the Mary Rose do suggest that the crew worked together, bonded together somewhat. So there was a number of gaming dices found on board, a number of different personal religious objects. We've got a number of Catholic rosaries, Lutheran Bibles. These men were potentially of different faiths, different backgrounds, but they would come together on this ship and they had to work together. We do know that England in this time did have problems sometimes integrating strangers into society. So we have the evil May Day riot of 1517, where there was an uprising against stranger communities. But then on the other hand, we have foreign soldiers serving in Henry's domestic army, serving alongside their neighbours. So in 1522, we got a gentleman from Normandy serving in Henry's army. In the same campaign, we have Peter Blackamore, a more born who also fought alongside his English counterparts. And in the 1539 campaign in Dorset, there was 42 Frenchmen and seven Dutchmen. So these are large stranger communities fighting alongside their English neighbours. So there must have been a degree of civility and maybe even friendship amongst these men. So we need to look at it from the short-term immigration perspective and also the long-term immigration. There would have been difficulties, but at the end of the day, these men were coming together with one purpose. They had to work together. So one last question for you then. You make the point that the Mary Rose and its crew emerge as a microcosm for Tudor society at war. But I wondered if you think it could be a microcosm for early Tudor society full stop. I mean, the Mary Rose is just such an extraordinary place to think about society more generally because ships are a microcosm of society because you know, they're not fighting all the time. I mean, we see what people are doing in their spare time. We can see all those aspects of everyday life. We can see cooking. We can see the work of the barber. We can see those medical procedures. We can see the religious aspects of life that went on as part of the daily rituals of individuals. So it's not just a picture of people from diverse backgrounds fighting together. It's also a picture of people of diverse backgrounds living together working out how to get along, perhaps navigating all those language difficulties. The person who speaks one language goes to the barber surgeon who speaks another and has to work out exactly the details of translation. And it's just fascinating to imagine how all those little intimate encounters day to day would be taking place. I think in terms of microcosm of Tudor society, we've got an aspect. So unfortunately, Tudor society, we've also got foreign communities where wives, children, and the Mary Rose is very masculine environment. It's warfare. It's only going to be male soldiers on board. So it can only tell us so much about Tudor society. 
But what it does tell us, as Catherine alluded to, it gives us an insight beyond warfare, how these men functioned on a daily basis, how they interacted with each other, where they potentially came from, their roots of migration. I mean, the artefacts, the Mary Rose, 19,000 objects, many of which wouldn't have survived in a normal setting. I mean, this is just a case study that can give us so many insights into the period. And I've been lucky to work with the artefacts to back up the historical written record with. At the end of the day, I think, you know, we have to remember it was a tragedy. Those men lost their lives going down with the ship. All of them will have left people behind. And it's easier, I think, as historians studying this today to sometimes forget that. But through that survival of the ship and all the objects of it, we have ended up with just an incredible ability to study those details that would otherwise have been lost. And I think that's one of the most remarkable things to come out of that historical incident. Yes, they didn't know that by dying they were leaving a record of their life, but in fact they did. Well, thank you both so very much for this really revelatory piece of work that you've done. And thank you for sharing it with us on Not Just the Tudors. Thank you. And thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, my researcher, Esther Arnott, and Stuart Beckwith, who edited this episode. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.